You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please feel free to contact us by visiting our website, harvestoakville.ca. Wow, it's so good to be here. Isn't it good to be here? It's just so good to be here. We have all these different... You can clap better than that. That's all right. It's good to be here. Uh, Brenda and I have been here all week. Last weekend we were at Toronto West, and if you ever get an opportunity to go to Harvest Toronto West, do it. Like Go there and just uh, visit with Jason and Aileen and the rest of the team there. It's just a real exciting thing that God's doing on the western edge of Toronto there, so please take advantage of that opportunity. They're just doing an amazing thing there. God's just showing up in amazing ways, and we're just uh, so thrilled to be with them last weekend. And this week we were with... uh, here with the Harvest Oakville staff, and you just got to know that these people, they love you. They just so love you, and they love God even more. It's just an amazing, amazing journey we've had this week with them. We've been so blessed with them, and now we have the opportunity to open God's Word. Uh, Brent and I have been married 29 years. Yeah, wow, is right. Yeah, yeah, she she deserves all the applause, Not, not me. 29 years, and it's been a great journey of God's faithfulness. We have uh, two children, adult kids, Jonathan and Christine, and they're married to amazing spouses. We're just thrilled what God's doing in them and through them and their ministry in different places across North America. Just really excited for them. And uh, so that puts me around the age of 53, in case you were wondering. Okay, 53. And I was reading online this week that the average life expectancy of a Canadian is 81 years. So let's do the math for me, just for me, right? 81 minus 53 means I have about, if, I, if God blesses me to meet the average, right, to meet the average, I have about 28 years left. 28. Actually, you know what it means for me? It means that I have less time ahead of me than what I have behind me. How many of you in this room are like me? When you do the math, you come up with the same conclusions. All right. Well, that's this for you. A little, little less than the other services. That, that means that the, the rest of you are, are really young, or some of you just don't know how to do the math in your head. <laughs> right? Or you're not willing to put your hand up. That's so, so Canadian of us. Uh, it really means that we have less days ahead of us than... Than, than what's behind us. Of course, God knows how many days any one of us have left. And whether we have 60 years or 16 years or two years or two months, right? don't you want to make every one of them count? I love what Psalm 90 verse 12 tells us. It says, Lord, teach us to number our days so that we can gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to to number our days. And I think that that's an amazing truth for all of us here this morning. We should take that into account and know that we should be being taught by God how to number our days. And I would suggest to you this this morning. If you want God to make a difference with the rest of your days, how many they, that you have, if you want Him to make a difference with your life, then you need to get on God's program for your life. And in Judges chapter 4 and 5, there's this story that illustrates very well what this program looks like, what God's program is 
uh, is for our lives that God uses to make a difference with our lives. So do you have a copy of God's Word? you have one? Let's look at Judges chapter 4. We're going to start in Judges chapter 4. And before we do that, I just want you, if you're taking notes, this is what you need to write down. You need to write down this first. Okay, if you're going to get on God's program so that God will make a difference with your life for the rest of your days, note this. You've got to let go. Let go. You say, well, let go of what? Let go of the need to be in control. All right, let go, let go of the need to be in control. Why? Because God has a plan that he fulfills. The book of Judges is a really interesting book. It's a, a book of historical stories, events that happened in history put together for us, and all of the stories kind of follow a similar pattern. Um, it kind of goes like this. Uh, the nation of Israel does evil in God's eyes, or later in the book of Judges it says they did what was right in their own eyes. And just in case you don't know this to be true, they are one and the same. If you're doing evil in God's eyes or doing what is right in your own eyes, that's the same thing. It's not a different thing. So they do that, and then God judges them or disciplines them. All different kinds of ways that he does that through the book of Judges. And then over a series of years, it's kind of mind-boggling to think about this. In most cases, it takes a number of years, a number of years for this to happen. But then eventually, they cry out to God. They figure out that, that what they're doing is what is right in their own eyes or, or what is evil in God's eyes. So they cry out to God, and then God sends them a judge, we say. That's why we call it the book of Judges. The problem with that is that when we think of judge, what do you think of? You think of a courtroom, some guy with white curly hair, big robe, and I'm kind of thinking that's not what the Israelites were looking for. When they're crying out to God, they're not looking for somebody to show up like a judge behind a big desk with a gavel in his hand. What do they want? They want a deliverer. Someone who can correct what's going on. And that's what the word judge really means. The word judge really means here in the book of Judges that a, a deliverer. So they do what's right in, in their own eyes or evil in God's eyes. God disciplines them for that. After a period of time, they cry out to God for help, and he sends them a deliverer. Okay, look at what it says here in chapter 4, verse 1. And the people of Israel again, again, all right, Again, you get the note? This, this is a kind of reoccurring theme. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Ehud was the left-handed judge. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Goyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. After 20 years, they finally cried out to God. And then it says this in chapter 4, verse 4, Now Deborah. Now Deborah. What are these verses telling us? They're telling us this. When I kind of read these verses, I think it's pretty obvious. God, God has a plan that he fulfills. In fact, if you take a bird's eye view or an overview of chapter 4, just kind of looking at it, I want to look at some verses just really quick. Okay, we're going to go at them in detail in a minute, but look at really quick how 
how the chapter 4 goes. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. It says this, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Verse 7. And and here the word is being talked about God. I will draw out Sisera. God will draw out Sisera. And I will give him into your hand. God will do that. Verse 9. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Look at verse 14. That for this is the day in which the Lord has given. And then it says, does not the Lord go out before you? Verse 15, it says, and the Lord routed Sisera. And look at verse 23, where it says, on that day, God subdued Jabin. Right? This whole story, it, it, it's about people. A whole bunch of people that we're going to interact with in just a minute. But don't miss this point. Do not miss this point. God has a plan that he alone fulfills. He is the one who is behind all of the activity. He is the one who is in absolute control. This is like a celebration of God's work. It's what he has done. It's his plan. It's his strategy. He's the one that produces the victory. He has a plan that he alone fulfills. Oh my, my, we need to get this. We have got to get this in our lives. We have to be, get to the point where we are willing to actually let go of having to control because we know, we believe that God has a plan that he alone fulfills. I don't know if you have the same problem that I do, but it's, it's kind of like a, it's a practical problem in my life because it seems like many of us are used to operating our lives like we have a plan that we're supposed to control. I remember when our, our children were young, under, say under the age of 10, um, you know, your whole, when your kids are really young, your, your life is about really a lot about them, right? It's about getting them up in the morning. It's about feeding them breakfast. It's making sure... In many cases, that they, you know, their lunch is ready. Um, after school, it's getting through their after-school programs. Some of you probably here this morning feeling, like, oh man, I just feel like I'm a taxi driver. I just drive them here and I drive them there, and all this kind of stuff. But the reality is, is you begin to actually think that you're kind of in control because they're so dependent on you. But then something happens. They become 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds. And you know what happens? You begin to realize that you don't have a plan. <laughs> you, you wish you did, right? That's another one of the hard things that we have. You wish you had a plan, but you begin to realize, I don't have a plan. And then they get a little bit older, and you're, going, and you're just like, oh, wow. You just feel like so, so, so not in control, and we have such a hard time with that as parents. Do we not? Let's be honest. Do we not? We do. Why? Because we have learned we have learned how to operate our lives based on making our own plans and being in control of those plans. If God is going to use you in a way that that he really wants to kind of release you in life, you're, you're going to have to learn a really, really hard truth. God has a plan that he fulfills. Not my plan, not your plan, but he has a plan that he fulfills. 
And so what we have to learn is we have to learn how to trust him because his plans are always better than ours. Always better than ours. Now, it shouldn't surprise us, should it? You read, through, you read through God's word, you read from the beginning of the, uh, Genesis all the way to the end of the Revelation, you know, you read through all of these books and you realize, yeah, you know what, yeah, God's got a plan. Now, at the core of every human being is there's, there's this problem, it's called sin. And, and we all sin and we all fall short of the glory of God, don't we? Romans chapter 3 verse 23. And because of that, there's a problem. We have sin, there's a problem. Well, what's the plan? Well, depending on who you talk to, you'll, you'll get a different answer to that question. Some people will actually tell you that the plan is that, that, I, that I, need to, I need to do some certain things. I, I need to do enough good things that will outweigh the bad things so that at the end of my life, um, you know, God will see me in a particular way and then I can enter into eternity with him. I need to earn my way to God's, to God's favor somehow. If, I, if I'm a certain kind of person, then I will be able to be, uh, earn God's favor. And, and God says, no, 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 no. As you read this, this, this beautiful scripture that God has given to us, you begin to realize that's not God's plan at all. God's plan, it's, just, it's got nothing to do with that. His plan is about love and grace and mercy and and God himself, Jesus Christ, comes to this earth and dies on the cross, sacrifices himself, takes our place so that we, if we express faith in who he is and what he alone can do, we are able to experience relationship with God now and, and forever. And I say, wow, that's like a way better plan than the one I could ever come up with. Better than your plan? Better than my plan. God, see, God has a plan that he alone fulfills. Or I think of Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 and, and those powerful words from the Apostle Paul who says that he who has begun a good work in us will bring it to what? Completion. No, I, it's, I'm not going to bring it to completion. You're not going to bring it to completion. Who's going to bring it to completion? God is. Wow, I mean, he's... I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that, that our God is a God who has a plan that he alone will fulfill. And so I would suggest to you this morning that we need to learn how to let go and start every single one of our days with open hearts and open hands that even though we have plans, and I'm sure you have your schedules are full. But as you begin your day and as you walk your way through your day, hold those schedules and those opportunities with open hands and an open heart and just say to God, God, I know I have plans, but I know yours are so much better than mine. I want to let go of the need for me to have to be in control. Let go because God has a plan that he fulfills. And the great mystery, the great mystery is that he allows us the privilege and joy of being used by him to fulfill that plan. Do, do you find that um, mysterious? I do. Because I, inside of me, at any given moment, are fears, 
and lack of trust. Things that I worry about, things that I'm anxious about from time to time, things that I know I shouldn't be anxious about, things that I, I don't want to be anxious about, and yet still things that I, I struggle with inside of me are all these things. And here's the, the beauty and the mystery of the whole thing. God has a plan that he alone fulfills, but then he invites us to participate in his fulfillment of that plan. And that's why we need to do this second thing. Write this down, this second thing. We need to learn how to get low, get really low and humble ourselves. You say, well, why, why do I need to get low in my heart and, and humble myself? Because God uses whomever he wants, however he wants. Now, let's look at the story. Chapter 4, verse 4. We're going to read a lot of scripture here this morning, and I just want to walk you through because this story is all about who is the person that God is using. So look at chapter 4, verse 4. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. So, you know, if you follow that, that cycle or that pattern for each one of these stories, well, it looks like Deborah is the deliverer. She's the one that God is going to use, right? She's a prophetess. Uh, she's judging Israel at that time. She actually was a kind of judge that people actually came to to seek out advice. She would tell them what, what God had to say, and she was kind of leading them in that kind of direction. So when we read these two verses, we think, wow. Maybe it's Deborah. Maybe she's the one that God wants to use to kind of solve this problem that the nation of Israel has. Well, look at what she says, though, in verse 6. So she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. So you start the story, and you think, well, it, it's Deborah, but then she says it's supposed to be who? Barak. Right? Barak, you're the one. God wants you to do that, except there's a little problem. Look at verse 8. Barak said to her, well, if you'll go with me, I'll go. But if you won't go with me, I won't go. How many of you like to have a general of your army that's like that? <laughs> yeah, wow, we got a lot of belief in you, dude. This is amazing. If you'll go with me, I'll go. But if you won't go with me, I will not go. What does he want? He wants a guarantee. She just told, she just told him that God said. That God had said to do this. And she wants a guarantee. And she, he wants a guarantee. So this is, how he, this is how he kind of figures out. He says, well, you know, Deborah, God likes you, right? So if you're with me, then nothing's going to happen to me. So, uh, you know, I need my little good luck charm. and kind of bring you along on the journey. Let's kind of go, go together. He's looking for this kind of guarantee. So this is what she did. Look at what she says in response to this in verse 9. She said, well, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. 
went up with him. He hesitates. Her response is, the honor's not going to be yours anymore because God's going to hand Sisera over to a woman. So you start the story and you're thinking, it's Deborah. And then Deborah says it's supposed to be Barak. Barak hesitates, wants a guarantee, kind of disqualifies himself. And now all of a sudden it's back to a woman. So I'm thinking, well, maybe it's Deborah again. But if you know the rest of the story, it's somebody else. This woman in jail. It's kind of getting confusing a little bit. I've got this person here, this person here, this person here, this person here. You're following me, though? You're following the sequence? So now we're introduced to the person, to the person that is going to bring to the end to this story. Her name is Jael, and the first person we meet about her is her husband. Verse 11. Now Haber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. This is her husband, Jael's husband. He's a, he's a Kenite, and the Kenites had a treaty with the nation of Israel. It was good to have a treaty with the nation of Israel so that they wouldn't do anything bad to you. So the Kenites had this treaty, so he's kind of safe with the nation of Israel because he's a Kenite. But at the same time, if you look at verse 17 very quickly where it says that there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite, he not only had a treaty with the nation of Israel, he also had a treaty with the Canaanites. Smart man. Shrewd. Right? Shrewd. Not only am I going to be protected by the Israelites, but now I'm going to be protected by the Canaanites. This is Jael's husband. Some people would suggest to you that what happens next is because he tells Sisera. Listen to what it says in verse 12. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, battles on right? Battles on. He finds out what's going on. Battles on. Sisera calls out all his chariots, chariots, 900 chariots of iron and all the men who are with him from Hersheth Goyim to the river Kishon. So you got to picture this, okay? You have the Israelite army, 10,000 men strong, making their way down towards Mount Tabor. And then you have the, the Canaanite army, moving their way, 900 chariots of iron. 900 chariots of iron. Could you imagine 900 chariots of iron that were designed to pursue after people as they turned and they ran? They were heavy, right? Strong, powerful chariots. And these, you have to understand, Israel is not a big geographical location. I'm, I'm guessing they're seeing one another. The army's coming this way. There's no, hi, there's no hide and seek here, Right? One army's coming this way, another army's coming this way. This is what makes the words of Deborah absolutely amazing. Verse 14, Deborah says to Barak, Up! This is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? Wow! This is awesome, she says. Here they come. Here they come. Let's go. Let's go. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. Wow! How did God do that? Well, flip over to chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, verses 20 through 22. Chapter 5 is a, is a poem it's a song, but it also helps fill in some information for us in the story of chapter 4. Listen to how 
the poem writes this in verse 20. From heaven the stars fought. I just love that phrase. From heaven the stars fought. In other words, this isn't just a battle between two armies. This is a, this is a, this is a God thing. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon. Kishon is the river by which the Canaanite army was gathering by. This river swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. March on, my soul, with might. Then loud beat the horse's hoofs with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. What did God do? I'll tell you what God did. This is what he did. He sent a flash flood into the river Kishon. Right? 900 heavy chariots of iron. Very opposing when you see them, but when you add water, what do you get? You get mud, and when you put heavy iron on mud, what happens to that? It sinks, and the horses are <laughs> trying to get out. Can you, just, can you not picture this? The, the, these, these awesome, these amazing-looking kind of chariots are just sinking down, sinking down, and the horses are fighting to get out, and all of a sudden, the, the army that was pursuing is now the army that's being pursued, and I'm telling you, God has a plan that he alone fulfills right? He alone fulfills this. So much so that Sisera had to get down from his chariot and he fled away on foot, verse 15. Then verse 16, and Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Agoim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left except for one, right? Sisera. And so we now we move from the battlefield and we go to the tent. Now what, listen to this. This is, this is amazing. Verse 17, but Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Haber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazar and the house of Haber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug and he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent. If any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, just say no. But Jael, the wife of Haber, took a tent peg, took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And this is one of the most obvious statements the Bible will ever make. So he died. <laughs> you know, I'm just guessing. Yeah, yeah, got it. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. God has a plan that he alone fulfills Right? But know this, right? He, he invites us to be part of this process. So there you have it. God has this plan that he fulfills. 
He uses Deborah. He uses Barak. Ultimately, he uses Jael to participate in this completion. What kind of person does God use to fulfill his plan? Most talented, most resourced, most connected, most gifted. Whomever he wants, however he wants. That's what the story tells us. He has this plan he wants to fulfill. He invites all these people into the process. He's just using whomever he wants, however he wants. The problem, the problem for me and the problem probably for you is that sometimes we're not okay with that. We don't like the idea that God's going to use whomever he wants, however he wants. And you know why? It's because ever since we were kids, we have been, we have been dealing with these two things, uh, comparing and competing. Comparing and competing. When I was younger, I know that's a long time ago for some of you to think, but when I was, long, when I was younger, uh, we used to get grades for everything. Okay, I don't know if we still do that or not, but um, when I was younger, we did. And whenever we got a test back, the first thing we would say to one another is, what did you get? Do you remember that? Yeah. It doesn't seem like that long ago, does it? But I'm telling you, it was, it was a long time ago. Okay. What did you get? What did you get? What did you get? And we got to remember, get an assignment back. What did you get? What did you get? What did you get? We were comparing with one another, comparing with one another. And, and, and this is kind of the active thing. This is the subtle thing. We are actively comparing with one another, and then what that led to is a subtle kind of competing with one another. It moved from grades to cars. I remember when I got my first car. It was so bad I never told anybody I had a car. Because we compared. And in our comparison, we were subtly competing with one another. Then it moved to jobs. Then it moved to schools. Then it moved to big jobs, permanent jobs. And then sometimes it even creeps into us comparing ministries and how God is using us within the church and within our communities with with our giftedness. Sometimes we even compare giftedness. And sometimes we even compare churches like this. We compare, we compete. We compare, we compete. When we should be celebrating. We should be celebrating. We should be celebrating the fact that God uses whomever he wants, however he wants. We should be celebrating the fact that God's even at work. And God is doing something whether it's large or whether it's small, whether it seems insignificant to us, it's not insignificant to God. And yet here we go, we compete, we compare, right? We compare, we compete, we should be celebrating, just celebrating what God is doing. I love what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. I'll just summarize it. He says, one person plants, another person waters, but God gives the increase. Right? God is the one that gives the increase. So this is what I know is true. God has a plan that he alone fulfills, and he uses whomever he wants, however he wants to fulfill his plan. But this is what he desires. I want the desire. So write this down. This is your third thing to write down. Write down this. Offer up. Offer yourself up. Because God loves to use a willing heart. He loves to use a willing heart. Offer yourself up. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. 
Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offer themselves, here's the word, willingly, bless the Lord. Verse 9, look at verse 9. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. That's a beautiful song that, she's, that they're singing here. The leaders took the lead in Israel. The people offered themselves willingly. Oh, just bless the Lord. Like, praise the Lord. Look at what they did. And, and that's exactly what God wants. He wants to use us, those of us who have a willing heart. He just loves to use people who have a willing heart. He wants to use you. He wants you to use you, a person who has a willing heart. Well, what does it mean to have a willing heart? Well, it means that your heart is free of excuses. Now, I already told you, chapter 5 is a poem, right? It's a, it's a song that they sang. I don't, know what, I don't know what the tune was, and I won't sing it for you. But there, it's a song, but it's a song that fills in some of the blanks that we don't understand in chapter 4. Like, I don't know if you understand this, but the call to go to battle actually went out to the whole nation of Israel. They're about to go into battle, and the call to go to battle went out to the whole nation of Israel. And guess what? Some people responded to the call, and other people didn't. Look at chapter 5, verse 12. I'm going to read this for you so you can see this right in this song. Chapter 5, verse 12. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir, marched down the commanders. And from Zebulun, those who bear the, the lieutenant's staff, the princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley, they rushed at his heels. But among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Seriously. The call to battle. Everybody, all hands, let's go. Let's go. And, and what, is, what does the tribe of, of Reuben do? They say, they say, well, let me think about it. I'm just guessing that if there's an impending war, that you don't have a lot of time to actually think about it. If the, if the call goes out, you actually have to respond pretty quickly. But you see the picture? It's like they're hanging around with their sheep, you know, kind of idea. Oh, yeah, just whistling along kind of idea. Oh, you want us to go into battle? Well, let's, you know, we're just going to have to think about that a little bit more. Right? Well, God wants us to go and do this. Okay, well, it's like, all right, fine. Thank you. We're just going to have to think about this a little bit more. And then there's, then there's the, the tribe Dan. Why, why did they stay with the ships? I can, I can almost hear them. They say, could we schedule this for Wednesday? You know, like, you, you want us to go now? Do you understand? I, I've got a lot to do. Right? We've got... We got ships we got to repair. We got to repair these nets. You got sails we have to repair. We got to do all these things to kind of get everything together. I mean, could, like, could we slide this into Wednesday from 12 to 2? A willing heart is an excuse free heart. 
A willing heart is a heart that's willing to risk everything for God. Look at the next verse, verse 18. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. They had a heart that not only said yes to the call, but they followed it with an action that said yes to the call. What's the difference between the two? Well, an unwilling heart does what's right in their own eyes, and a willing heart is gripped by and submitted to the call of God on their life. So let me ask you this question this morning. What is God asking you to do? What's God asking you to do? One of the most basic and fundamental calls on our lives as Christians is the call of Jesus where he says, follow me, follow me, follow me. So this call is an amazing sense of purpose and it gives us great joy and great privilege in our lives. It's an amazing calling in our lives. And some of you this morning, as you hear those words, what God is asking you to do, I can't help but think that God is asking you to come to his free gift of salvation. To place your faith in Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done to to pull away from your own efforts, to pull away from your ability to earn and just to fall on your knees before his grace and his mercy, his absolute love for you that that is expressed through Jesus Christ. question is, how are you going to respond to that? For some of you, for some of you, what is God asking you to do? Perhaps you have already expressed your faith in Christ, but you've never gone public with the, the biblical way in which proclamation is made and scripture through baptism and gone through the waters of baptism and just saying to everybody who watches you and saying, I'm all in with Jesus. I mean, there's just no doubt. I'm just I want everyone to know that I'm all in. I'm publicly proclaiming this today. Is that what God's asking you to do? For some of you, perhaps as business owners, maybe the call to follow Jesus is to leverage your kingdom so that you can be used in a way that, that helps to advance the kingdom of God around the world and within, your, within those that work for you. Or perhaps those of you who are married, when you hear the, hear the words, come follow me, and you realize that Jesus wants your marriage to display the amazing love that Christ has for the church. Husbands, this means that come follow me, this, this call that's coming from God on your life, this, is, this means that, that you are to call to sacrificially and, and just in amazing ways, just lay down your your, your life for your wives. And wives, as your husbands do that for you, you respond in a in an act of submission and respect and honor. Is that what God's asking you to do? Or perhaps as parents you're being called to follow Christ and that means to make disciples of your children to intentionally and purposefully pour into their lives or maybe with your neighbors you're being called to love them as Christ loves them and to live out the gospel and to declare the gospel with them or maybe you're being called to serve some of you here this morning perhaps you've got the worship thing down and you've got the 
walk with Christ somewhat down, but you're not working for Christ. You're not using your gifts to build up the body of Christ. Jesus says, follow me. And for some of you here, and this, with this size of group of people that we've been able to speak to this weekend, I can't help but think that there are some here amongst you who are being called into vocational ministry to serve the church of Jesus Christ. What an amazing, amazing privilege to be called by God to serve the church of Jesus Christ locally or maybe even globally around the world. And for a few of our brothers and sisters in many country, countries around the world, today the, the God is asking them to actually lay down their lives, to lay them down. So what will your response be to that? What's God asking you to do? What's your response to that? I got lots of excuses. I'm, a, like a, I'm an expert in excuses. Here are some. Here are some of my favorite ones. I'm too busy. You know, that's not a good time for me. Or it's pretty inconvenient. This is not that, you know, God, what you're asking me to do, this is not really part of my five-year plan. Right? Some of you can relate to that. You got your life kind of planned out, and God's asking you to do something different, and you can go, ah. This is really inconvenient. Or maybe I'm, I'm not capable enough. I, I, I don't know how to do that. I, I don't know how to do that. It's certainly someone else is better suited for that. In fact, I could, I could actually, God, I could actually lead you to the person that's actually better to do that. I know who they are. They're sitting right beside me right now. Right? Or, or maybe it's just, it's, you know, God, this is just too hard. I can't do this. I think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane just before he's about to die, and he says, Father, if it be your will, could you just allow this cup to pass? Yet, not my will, but yours. How are you going to respond? Are you going to respond with excuses, or are you going to respond, you're going to respond and say, God, no, God, okay, I... I'll lay it down. I'll I'll be willing. I'll risk. I'll risk my life. I'll risk my life for you. If God loved me so much by sending His Son to die for me, why wouldn't I do the same for Him? See, if you want to make a difference for God with your life, you got to get on God's program for your life, and that means letting go the need to be in control, knowing that God has a plan that He fulfills. It means get low. Be humble because knowing that God uses whomever he wants, however he wants. It also means offer up. Offer yourself up. Be a willing participant. No more excuses. No more excuses. Let's just bow. Let's bow our heads right now. Maybe you're here this morning and uh, you, you know this is true in your heart. You've just been saying no to God too often. Maybe some of you are experiencing right now the Holy Spirit is just pressing on your heart and you know that you, you've got to submit to God's plan of salvation, the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ.
you've been saying no to that, thinking that you could earn it or that you would deserve it, that you could be good enough. But you're not. So maybe now is the time to say yes. Some of you, you've come up with excuses to to not get baptized. And we could argue about that all the time. There's probably really good reasons that you have. I get it. Maybe God's telling you now it's time not to say no. Maybe now's the time to say yes. Husbands. Come on, husbands. It's time to stop saying no to God's pattern for your family, to say, yes, I'm going to lay my life down for my wife because Christ laid his life down for me. Man, there's so many things. What's God asking you to do? Do you have a willing heart? In this moment, I just want to encourage you just to cry out to God and say, God, I want to say yes now. This is my moment. I'm saying yes now. And if that's you, I want you to take a next step because I found this to be true of my life, that whenever God does something in my heart, it's always good to take a next physical step to kind of affirm that. So why don't you, if that's what God's doing, God's been pressing into your heart through this, throughout this message about having a willing heart. And you know that now's the time for you to express that. Just stand right where you are, all across this auditorium, stand right where you are, and then I'm going to pray for you. Go ahead, stand up. Stand up for Christ, the one who died for you. Wow. Precious people, Father, people who just have open hearts and open hands before you. They just want to be used by you. They want, they want you to know that their hearts are willing. So now, Father, we pray that you would give them the courage to follow through. Spirit, would you equip them, empower them, encourage them, move them forward in you. Father, we give you all the praise. We know you're at work here. This is a sacred time. God, just help us all to reaffirm the fact that we want to follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.